From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. For decades, people have used the Colorado River as though it's an unending water source. But 20 years of drought and climate change mean that has to change. And the pace of that change is picking up. It's changing our landscapes, our lawns, and how and where we get outside. It'll dictate where we can build new homes. This drought will change what we eat and where our food comes from. We'll talk about CPR's new podcast, Parched, and the solutions it explores. Then, U.S. Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas has come under fire following a media report that he failed to disclose accepting lavish gifts and trips from a billionaire buddy for some two decades now. But what are the requirements for judges and justices here in Colorado? Colorado shows itself as a, uh, a model for the rest of the country. Support for Colorado Public Radio comes in all shapes and sizes. You might give monthly as an Evergreen member or contribute during fund drives. Maybe you donated your car or gave a gift of stock. For all the ways you support CPR, thank you so much. Your generosity is deeply appreciated. Thank you for bringing trustworthy news and timeless music to listeners across Colorado. Explore all the ways to give at CPR.org. Click on Support CPR. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. The 20-year drought in the Southwest is adding up to be a big problem for people who rely on the Colorado River, all 40 million of us. So what can we do about it? How can we ensure we can keep living here with enough water for years to come? That's the focus of a new podcast from CPR News called Parched is hosted by Michael Elizabeth Sackis. She's here to share the first episode. Hi, Michael. Hi, Chandra. What do you want this show to accomplish? I've been reporting on water for years in Colorado, and this show allows for so much more depth into one of the biggest environmental stories in the country right now. Mm. And this series really helps us to understand what the drought means, you know, for you and for me and what we can all do to save this region and ourselves. And I hope it gets more people really interested in the West water problems and invested in finding solutions. Well, when you think about it, I mean, water is just so important in our lives. Mm -hmm. And I think in some ways we get that, obviously, when we don't have it. But, you know, a lot of times you really don't think about it until you don't have it or there's a shortage or you can't do something that you want to do. So this sounds really big. It is. Yeah. We heard from Coloradans who shared that they want a more vivid understanding of how the Colorado River supports people across the Southwest mm. so that they can understand those headlines that they see about this water crisis. So I've gotten the opportunity to travel all over the Southwest. I actually finally got a passport. First time. Oh, wow. Yeah, first time getting a passport. <laughs> Congratulations. Yeah, it was a, so I could go to northern Mexico, which is where the river ends. And we also visit the start of the river, which is here in Colorado in the Rocky Mountains and so many places in between. In the show, we meet all these different people who depend on the Colorado River and who share big ideas on how to use water differently that can be replicated or embraced to help us all live here with less water. 
Oh, you have me interested. So let's listen to the first episode together. And can you set it up for us? Yes, of course. This first episode takes you to ground zero for the water crisis in the Southwest, the place where our collective water savings, like a bank, are running out. And you'll hear from someone there who's been a loud voice in saying, we need to do more with more urgency to shore up our water supplies. And she's been taking action to do that to protect her city. Well, I'm excited to hear it. This is episode one of Parched, CPR's newest podcast about solutions to our water woes in the West. Where Arizona and Nevada meet, it's hot and it's dry. Our car is winding through red and yellow canyons. Pale green scrub bushes sit on top of more yellow and brown dirt. Tucked in these canyons is one of the seven wonders of the industrial world. We're about 11 miles out from Hoover Dam. I've heard a lot about how incredible it is to see it in person, just how massive it is. Hoover Dam is a legit engineering feat. When it was finished, it was the biggest concrete structure people had ever built. This gigantic concrete wall crosses a canyon to hold back the Colorado River. It produces electricity and harnesses water so people can live and survive throughout the southwestern U.S. It means people can drink, shower, grow food, and work in some of the hottest and driest places in the country. Okay, now we're driving through lots of power lines. For decades, it has fulfilled that promise. Hoover Dam generates power for more than a million people, and it creates the biggest human-made pool of water in the country, Lake Mead. It's our water savings, just like you want to keep money in the bank. All the states, from Wyoming to California, made an agreement to keep water in Lake Mead as a bank to use when not enough water comes down the Colorado River. It's the biggest pool of savings we have. That's why I wanted to see this for myself. Oh, wow. So we're like, we're driving down into the canyon. This is crazy. Wow. We're under that big, iconic bridge, and that thing is massive. I've seen photos and they definitely do not do that justice. Millions of people, like me, come here every year to walk along the dam and gawk at how big it is. But seeing it for the first time on this hot day last October, it looks kind of ridiculous to me. This 700-foot-tall marvel of steel and concrete and Western ambition is holding up much less water than it once did. Today, I can see parts of this concrete wall that had disappeared in the 1940s as the canyon filled up with water. People thought they'd never see these parts of the wall again. This marvel of engineering almost looks silly. It does not need to be this big anymore. Now, tourists are here gawking at the low water levels. It's so nice to meet you. We are here to 
work on a podcast about the Colorado River. I walk up to Alicia Guzman, who's here with her brother and niece. She has sunglasses on against the glare. We're both sweltering, even though it's October. you want to chat with me? Cool. Have you been here before? Yes, I have. Actually, I started coming here, oh my gosh, since I was 18. So I won't tell you how many years ago. (laughs) But I was just telling them how... uh, concerning it is nowadays with the, the historical low levels of this lake. It is very concerning. Yeah, so you've been coming here since you were 18, and now you're seeing these levels, and it's it's got you a little, uh, little freaked out? Yes, definitely, definitely. Since we were coming down through Boulder City, I could see there's some islands that I didn't see before, and that is like, oh my gosh, it's like really, really concerning. It's scary, actually. It's very scary. The water in the reservoir has been dropping quickly over the past several years. It's scary for Alicia because she lives in Phoenix. This is like essentially your drinking water source. Exactly. Yes. So I was telling my family right now, don't take long showers. (laughs) Start saving. You know, that's why there's so much talk about, you know, saving water. And now we're seeing it, you know. I mean, I had already seen I was here maybe two, three months ago. And I thought it was low back then. And now it seems like it's just lower every, every time I pass by here. And it's only a matter of a couple of months that I was here. So you were here only a couple months ago and then you're here again today. Is it just you wanted to show your family or? I can just remember going back to 30 years ago when this was full of water and it was you know, amazing. I was even a little bit back then, I was even a little bit scared you know, to see all this water and, you know, the big walls and how heavy the water was. And I'm like, I wonder if the walls are strong enough to hold that water. And now it's like, where's the water? <laughs> now the concern is not the walls anymore, it's the water level. So, <laughs> you know, you know, the only thing that makes me happy about this situation is that I lived, I, to have seen the good levels of water. So that is amazing. I saw when it was good. (laughs) And something your niece did not get to see. Exactly. How does that make you feel, knowing that she hasn't seen that and might never see that? Well, sad. It's it's sad that our youth would never get to see what we saw. It's just one of the many things that they'll never see. Hoover Dam and its reservoir, Lake Mead, where I met Alicia, are kind of ground zero right now for the West's water problems. Lake Mead in particular, this is near Las Vegas, is showing the dramatic effect of falling water levels. And it's now giving up many of its formerly submerged secrets, including another set of human remains. People have found bodies that were thrown or drowned in Lake Mead who knows when. Those images are dramatic, but they're not what makes Lake Mead really important to most of us. What makes it important is that it's the biggest pool of water savings we have. And when you don't have enough water, it gets cut off. That's not some far out fear. Listen to these folks from Rio Verde Foothills in Arizona. Their water got cut off this year. They talked to 12 News. Imagine, if you will, camping in your own home. This is our forever home. I'm, you know, coming up a retirement age. We need water now. Within a matter of days, 
Our water tanks at our homes will be dry. They still don't have a water source. For most of us, when we turn on our faucets, water still comes out. Hopefully that won't change anytime soon. But if we want that to be true for our grandkids, we're at the point where we need to think more seriously about our survival in the Southwest. Rio Verde Foothills is one of the first, but it won't be the last. This mega drought is forcing us to change. And the pace of that change is picking up. It's changing our landscapes, our lawns and how and where we get outside. It'll dictate where we can build new homes, what those homes are worth, and where companies and their employees can be. This drought will change what we eat, where our food comes from. All of these changes have already started. A large part of the Phoenix metro is growing faster than the water supply that's needed to support that growth. Schofield in central Utah has run out of water and is having water trucked in. City leaders in Oakley decided to halt new construction a few months ago. Now dozens of permits are just waiting. We have to make sure there's water for the existing people in town. Starting right now, communities across Washington County are tearing out more than 100,000 square feet of grass because of the drought. We're identifying acres and acres of turf that we're going to be removing. The lack of water has dried up business for some area farmers. The 40 million of us who rely on the Colorado River are seeing climate change in action right now. We're among the first when it comes to a massive water system like this, especially in the U.S. That means that what happens here doesn't just affect us, it matters to everybody. Our dilemma is a predictor of what other parts of the U.S. and the world will face next. So what can we do about it? We're listening to the first episode of Parched, the new podcast from CPR News about the Colorado River and those of us who depend on it. When we come back, Michael takes us to the source of our water supply, a stream, not a river, high in the Rockies. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. On the latest episode of My Story So Far, the new storytelling podcast from CPR, hear personal stories from students and educators in Aurora, Colorado. We pull up to the Doge, and I felt like Jaden Smith version 2 in the making. And I'm like, woo, I'm about to meet my Jackie Chan. Wax on, wax off. And so I get my white belt, I get my white gi, and I suit up like this is the Avengers protocol for my first class. Uh, <laughs> my story so far. Find it wherever you get podcasts. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Chandra thomas Whitfield. We're sharing the premiere episode of Parched, the new podcast from CPR News about the Colorado River and those of us who depend on it. Let's get back to our host, Michael Elizabeth Sackis from CPR's climate team. If we're going to figure our way out of this water crisis, we need to understand where our water comes from. I'm not talking about Lake Mead. That giant pool gets its water from high, high up in what's basically my backyard in the Rockies. In the quiet week just before New Year's, my editor Aaron and my producer Emily and I roll up a snowy road deep in the Colorado mountains. We've been driving for probably about 30 minutes since we hit the borders of Rocky Mountain National Park, and it's just been lots of snow, 
really pretty trees with snow glistening on their on their needles and snow is starting to fall from the sky a little bit and here we are we just pulled up at the parking lot of the the trailhead to the Colorado River the trail is packed down evergreen trees tower over us on either side we're up 9000 feet it feels like we're an illustration in a fairy tale book right now <laughs> Over the river and through the woods, to grandmother's house we go. Something about a sleigh and something else. <laughs> that is what's in my head right now, as we trudge through the snow. And we just crossed a bridge. In the spring, when this snow melts, it'll tumble down the mountain and then spread out into other rivers. In Colorado, Utah, New Mexico in the booming cities and fields in Arizona and Nevada. People will use it. The water will keep going all the way to California and Mexico. It'll nourish the farms where so much of our food grows. But before any of that, right now, it's just fresh snow. My extremely dignified editor, Erin, wants a more hands-on experience. I will now be tasting the snow. It tastes delicious. Very fresh. Very snow-like. Very <laughs> fresh like and snow-like. Snow. You gonna taste it? <laughs> I feel like Ralphie <laughs> sticking my tongue <laughs> on a metal pole. Mm, no, I mean... Refreshing. I've tasted a lot of snow. It doesn't taste dirty. <laughs> it's so fluffy. Like, it looks like that, like the fake plastic snow that they sprinkle on displays and windows of shopping centers. Then we see a trickle. And it's not the mighty Colorado River you might imagine. The Colorado River carved the Grand Canyon, for goodness sakes. But up here, where it starts, we're looking at a teeny tiny stream hidden under ice. We are on a wooden bridge with the Colorado River flowing underneath it. But even putting the word flowing to it feels like that's just too much. When you look around, if you're really quiet, you can hear just the slightest amount of river bubbling. The river that will support life all the way down to Mexico. This spot is where it all begins. I love to walk and find trails like this. I love Colorado. I love road trips here, and I love how large everything feels. The drought has made some people question whether we should get to live in the West, since it is so dry. And so many people are vying for the same water. I'm one of the people that conversation is being had about, but I can't really imagine living anywhere else. I don't want to. I want to figure out how we can keep living here indefinitely, even though parts of it are naturally a desert. It turns out that even though the river starts in Colorado, the solutions start at that giant pool of water with the savings in our collective bank account. 
Hearts is the new podcast from CPR News. When we come back, Michael takes us back to Lake Mead to meet one of the people trying to stave off the water crisis. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. The newest podcast from Colorado Public Radio called Terra Firma brings you the sounds of nature with reflections from Colorado-born writer C. Marie Furman. I hope that you find Terra Firma a place where you're not being pulled away, but pulled to a few minutes to connect to a story, to a landscape, and to yourself. Find Terra Firma wherever you get your podcasts. Supported by Credit Union of Colorado. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. The West water problems and how to solve them are the focus of a new podcast from CPR News called Parched. We're listening to the first episode with host Michael Elizabeth Sackis, who's from CPR's climate reporting team. Okay, we're back at Lake Mead. Around the reservoir, there's yellow and red rock everywhere. I'm standing out here to meet the number two person in charge of water for Southern Nevada, Colby Pellegrino. Do people ever point out that Pellegrino is a fun name for someone who works in water? (laughs) It has been pointed out before that it's a unique name for the position that I hold. (laughs) Colby Pellegrino is confident but understated. Her job is big. Millions of people count on her to keep giving them water. But no biggie. She rolls up to this interview in her own minivan. So we're on the banks of Lake Mead. Um, We actually sit in an area called Saddle Island, which is no longer an island. (laughs) This hasn't actually been an island since at least 2009. The water has receded enough that now it's just an extension of the rock. That kind of change is a problem for Colby and for Las Vegas, where she lives about 45 minutes away. No big city is as dependent on the Colorado River as Las Vegas is. It gets nearly all of its water from here, in Lake Mead. Las Vegas could not exist without the ability to deliver water from Lake Mead to the Las Vegas Valley. If anyone knows how urgent our water problems are, it's Vegas and it's Colby. They've been able to take big steps to make sure it has water for the long term. I came to find out how. So I think the big goal for my career at Southern Nevada Water Authority is to ensure that the people and businesses in our community continue to thrive despite all of the water supply issues that there are on the Colorado River. She's on a mission to save life in the Southwest. You have two kids. How much do you think about them when it comes to your work? Oh, I think about my kids a lot. I was born and raised in this community. I am a homeowner here. I'm a PTA member. My kids participate in sports. You know, uh, we are through and through a Las Vegas family. And I think what's rewarding about this job is that it's setting up Las Vegas for the future. And maybe I don't think about my kids every moment in that. But I do think that should they choose to live their life here, uh, I want to make sure that it's a livable, sustainable place to be. She loves this place. It's the only city she can call home. 
my dad uh, was a teacher. My mom was a real estate agent. We didn't necessarily have ties to the Strip or the resort corridor. I think it was very akin to other kids in other communities where, you know, yeah, I live in the Washington, D.C. area, but I don't go walk the National Mall every week. Las Vegas was a place that was sort of filled with recreational opportunities. Lots of hiking out at Red Rock, lots of boating at Lake Mead. Colby remembers that when she was growing up, it was hot during the day, like it is today. And then at night, it would get cooler. Now, though? Particularly in recent times, definitely feel the warm temperatures extending. You know, like still at the beginning of October and we're in the 90s. I always remember Halloween being like the first really chilly need to wear your sweats. You know, make sure you get a Halloween costume that goes okay with a sweatshirt or that you can throw on a pair of sweatpants. Now my kids are like, Mom, why do I have a Halloween costume with pants on? It's so hot out. Colby was into science and math in high school, and she got picked for a program to study water quality in the area. She got pulled out of class sometimes to go collect water samples. I started interning at the Water Authority when I was a sophomore in college. I've kind of always been interested in water. You know, had a boat on Lake Mead as a child, so certainly saw Lake Mead fuller than full. Yeah, what is it like now seeing Lake Mead as low as you've ever seen it? Like, what feelings come up when you look out there? You know, we talk a lot about how much Lake Mead has moved vertically, you know, 170 feet or whatever the number is for how much we've dropped. But you don't really think of how much that means horizontally until you stand somewhere that used to be underwater and you realize you've got a mile to walk until you hit the water's edge. I think that's where it kind of hits you the most of how much water has gone away. As Colby has gone from a kid in Halloween costumes to a mom who picks them out for her kids, her city and the area around it have grown up too. When I was born, there were 300,000 people living in Las Vegas. Now there's 2.3 million. All of those people use this water source. So our problem now is that while less water comes down the river, more people want to use it. Just like Vegas, Denver, Santa Fe, Phoenix have all exploded. This whole region is real estate hot and hot, hot. And while the Colorado River doesn't actually touch any of these cities, Colby explains they're some of the many that pipe water in from the river. Most of the cities on the West Coast would not exist without water supply importation. Everything from Santa Barbara to San Diego would not exist without water supply importation. That's sort of the story of the West, is moving water around in order to, you know, create these metropolitan areas that we inhabit. While we're all waking up to the fact that there's so much less water to move around to grow our cities and farms, for Colby, this isn't new. She started working at the Water Authority right after the mega drought that we're in started to get really bad in 2002. Nevada used more than its share of the Colorado River, while at the same time, there wasn't as much water coming down the river. 
And so that year that our use really jumped in 2002, I think was a wake-up call for everyone. Because if you use too much and less comes in, eventually you're going to run out of water. That's what we're seeing right now. Back then, Colby made models to show how climate change would affect how much water the Colorado River would have. She saw the disaster we face today coming. For decades now, Las Vegas has drawn water from Lake Mead through two straws, two pumping stations. It pipes the water across the desert to the metropolis of Vegas. These straws made it possible for Vegas to grow so big. But when Colby and her colleagues made the model, they realized that one day, if the water kept dropping, the straws wouldn't reach low enough in the lake to pull out water anymore. And now, decades later, her prediction has come true. That infrastructure at Elevation 1050 is actually out of the water now. You can see it. It's inoperable. Years ago, when they saw this coming, the possibility of this happening was obviously very scary. They had to come up with a way to keep delivering water to Las Vegas, even if the lake dropped below the straws. So in 2005, the Southern Nevada Water Authority decided to build a third straw to reach way deeper in the lake. It would tunnel sideways instead of dipping in from above. It was a race against time. They needed to finish it before their water source went away. In 2020, after 15 years, they finished the last part, the pumping station for this third straw. Today, out on the island that's not an island anymore, I see shiny metal pumps in neat rows. Is this really one of the largest engineering projects in the world? It is. Um, When you look at the complexity, the dollar amount, there's quite a few world records um, that were broken on it in terms of pumping size and distance that was used. Certainly some tunneling feats uh, with the depth uh, and the amount of water above us. Building this last straw into the reservoir and the pumps to go with it cost a billion and a half dollars. They turned on the new pumps in 2022. That means Las Vegas can keep getting water, even though Lake Mead has dropped more quickly than most people imagined. Amazingly, Nevada's straw goes deeper than the level the lake needs to be at to generate power at Hoover Dam or push water to other states. So even if the dam can't make power and California and Arizona can't get water from Lake Mead, Vegas is going to be okay, at least for a while which really makes us one of the most water-secure communities in the desert southwest. For Colby, making that a reality is about much more than her job or herself. She's thinking about her kid's future here. Yeah, do you think it's going to be possible for them to live their whole lives in this city like you have? Absolutely. So Las Vegas and Southern Nevada spent a billion and a half dollars to get water from deeper in Lake Mead. Vegas has also had to aggressively reduce how much water it uses. 
I'll tell you that story on another episode. Even though Las Vegas made sure it can keep pulling water from Lake Mead, that doesn't mean the rest of the region can keep relying on the savings account. The old systems people set up to move water to make all the growth in the West possible aren't going to be enough anymore. Change is coming quickly. The age of plentiful water is over. We have been overusing the Colorado River for a significant period of time, and at least since 2000. We don't have years of storage left on the river. You know, I think we have about one to two years max if we get a dry, you know, mediocre or really dry years. Colby and her boss in Southern Nevada call this a moment of reckoning for all of us, from Wyoming to Mexico. We can continue to bury our heads in the sand, and eventually there just won't be water to deliver. Uh, we don't <laughs> we don't get to decide who wins. Mother Nature does. If we if we don't adapt, people are going to be out of water. If we do adapt, we're going to find a way to continue to sustain life the way we have. If we can come together and have the foresight to think of how much better things will be 10 or 15 years from now, if we think really hard and do the really tough things and sometimes expensive things, I think we can continue to have a resilient Colorado River. For decades, the people in charge of our water have tried to save us from the point we're at now. They've held a lot of meetings where they end up disagreeing about who gets how much water and who needs to cut back. You've seen the headlines. From all of those meetings, not enough has changed. Because we're here now, using more water than we can afford to. And the river keeps getting lower with climate change. The good news is we can choose to save ourselves and our region. Over this series, we'll take you through solutions, the types of things people in charge could embrace. Some aren't engineering level big. There's stuff you and I can do. We've been waiting for two years for these units to come in, and it's been like holding our breath. And this thing just arrived at my house today for the first time, so it makes me feel like things are happening. <laughs> We're going to see up-close decisions that our cities and states and tribes can make. We are on a barge, and we are now floating out onto the waters of the Bellagio Fountain. And there are big things that we would need the federal government to lead on. People think that there are crazy ideas, but it's not so crazy whenever you're looking at your water faucet being turned off. Part of figuring out what solutions to pursue is understanding how we got into this mess. That was the thought. We'll build these gargantuan facilities. We're going to tame nature. We're going to show it how we're going to manage. What did that do to the you know, other opportunities you know, for Native Americans? We continued to be an afterthought and hope but maybe we would go away. Next time, two people a member of the Hickory Apache Nation, and a descendant of Mormon colonizers give us a fuller picture of what's needed to fix this water crisis. 
Michael Elizabeth Sackis, host of Parched, is still with us. Michael, the next episode you have sounds really intriguing. Yes. In reporting on water for years now, I realized our problems go even deeper than the disappearing reservoirs. And I'm excited to bring you that story next week. Awesome. You can follow Parch so you don't miss an episode in your favorite podcast app. It's hosted by CPR's Michael Elizabeth Sackis. When we come back, following a fallout over the actions of U.S. Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas, what are the standards of ethics for Colorado judges and justices? This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It peaks at just 11,000 feet, but as the largest flat-top mountain in the world, it certainly lives up to its name, Grand Mesa. Broad and wide, Grand Mesa is capped by a layer of uneroded basalt that dates back to volcanic eruptions 10 million years ago. Rising tall over the dry, high desert, it's graced with hundreds of lakes and home to multitudes of trout, bear, cougars, elk, deer, and according to Ute legend, thunderbirds whose mighty wings could whip up ferocious storms. After a massive and deadly mudslide on Grand Mesa in 2014, one witness described a sound like a big clap of thunder. And on the western face of Grand Mesa, there's a rock formation that does look like a thunderbird. A reminder that others have called Grand Mesa by another name, Thunder Mountain. A Colorado postcard from Colorado Public Radio with the support of National Jewish Health. Breathing science is life. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. U.S. Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas has come under fire recently for not disclosing that he accepted lavish gifts and trips from a billionaire buddy for some two decades now. It made us wonder, what are the requirements for judicial officers here in Colorado? I spoke with Christopher Gregory, executive director of the Colorado Commission on Judicial Discipline. The commission is only one of three parts of an oversight system that we have here in Colorado, where we select our judges, we have a system for uh, choosing whether to retain those judges, and then we have our disciplinary system. And the disciplinary system is what the uh, commission itself is concerned about. But this overall system that Colorado has, it's really a product of both history and experience. And um, I'd be happy to uh, kind of explain some of that history because I do think it overlaps on some of the issues that uh, we are now seeing with the uh, U.S. Supreme Court. Well, of course, part of what you do is accept complaints. What types of complaints do you most often hear in your position? You know, if you you look at what a, a judge's responsibilities are, the typical complaints that we see, you know, kind of follow that. There could be a question of whether a judge has lacked diligence or is delayed in performing their judicial functions. Perhaps a judge um, has had some exhibition of uh, unprofessional demeanor in the language they use and uh, the behaviors that they've had both in and out of the courtroom. There's some circumstances where a judge might uh, uh, use their staff for personal errands or personal purposes. Any sort of criminal conduct that a judge might be involved in, including like DUIs, there could be uh, sexual or other harassment that either happens uh, inside or outside of the courtroom. Other examples include improper political activities or noncompliance with the rules uh, that uh, apply to retention elections that judges are expected to undergo uh, after after certain terms once they're appointed. There's also uh, issues if a judge fails to make a financial uh, disclosure, 
or mm. disclose a relationship that he or she might have within the courthouse. Those things, you know, are are grounds for uh, a judicial disciplinary proceeding. And there's also uh, examples of uh, judges that have uh, misused their contempt power, have expressed discriminatory remarks or expressed bias in some way. And those are the types of situations that the commission uh, would look at. Uh, as far as our caseload, however, there seems to be you know, a lot of misperception or confusion over uh, the notion that if somebody has an unfavorable ruling or an unfavorable result in the case, that they can use the commission as essentially a uh, appeal or uh, uh, an alternative to uh, appellate review. Mm. And the commission doesn't have any power to undo another court's uh, a court's order or that that sort of thing. So you're you're kind of uh, referring to say like the attorney who maybe did not get a favorable verdict, so to speak, or ruling, they may in turn try to file a complaint against that judge or justice regarding that. Right. And you know those uh, those types of requests for evaluation are kind of categorically uh, dismissed um unless in that request there's something else there you know one of those examples that i just gave uh something that would go against our written ethical standards which should come out of the uh, code of judicial conduct something like that uh, it's it's really the commission's uh, duty to enforce that that ethical standard that we have in the state well of course we're talking about this because of this huge media storm that's followed this report on justice clarence thomas and what are judges and justices in the state of Colorado required to disclose? So under the Colorado Code of Judicial Conduct, we have different canons. There's, there's four basic canons and then uh, more specific rules that regulate conduct. And there's uh, just a handful of rules that are real specific to the question that you've just asked. Mm -hmm. And just in a real basic sense, what they require is that a judge cannot accept income, gifts, loans, or other benefits that would undermine his or her independence, integrity, or impartiality. And then we have, beyond the code of judicial conduct itself, expectations under Colorado's public disclosure law. And what that requires is that judges and other public officials have to uh, file annually and uh, sometimes more frequently disclosures uh, with the uh, Colorado Secretaries of State's office that include an accounting of the gifts they've received, loans, benefits, and uh, other extrajudicial income exceeding a value of $50. The reports and disclosures that are made to the uh, Secretary of State's office are publicly available. So if someone... Uh, is interested, they can, can contact the uh, Secretary of State's office and see what a judge has received. I'm just curious, based on what you do for a living, what were your thoughts when you heard about the Clarence Thomas report? Well, uh, I, I can't comment on the specific facts that are uh, involved with Justice Thomas. However, uh, one thing that I am really struck with is that it seems uh, as though there's a national conversation right now about uh, the U.S. Supreme Court needing to uh, be subject to a written code of ethics that goes beyond just aspirational um, statements or uh, recommendations. And what's uh, interesting about that is that uh, Colorado had that exact same conversation back in the 1960s when our current system of merit-based judicial selection, retention, and discipline was adopted by the uh, voters and added into our state constitution. And I think some of the uh, you know reasons and circumstances that were in place then are 
also at issue now as uh, I think that same question of uh, what what types of standards and things should uh, be applied to the uh, U.S. Supreme Court. And interestingly, in February of uh, this year, the American Bar Association had passed a resolution asking the U.S. Supreme Court or the federal government to uh, essentially adopt uh, a system very similar to uh, what we use here in, in Colorado. Do any of these requirements in terms of code of conduct and disclosures, does it change based on your specific position as, a, as, say, a judge or a justice? So, for example, if you're a county court judge versus a district court judge or a state Supreme Court justice, is it all uniform or does it vary based on your specific position in, say, jurisdiction? Well, and I think you, you bring up a, an important point, which is what is the jurisdiction of uh, our uh, Commission on Judicial Discipline? And it, it's uh, limited to state court judges that hold their office through Article 6 of the state constitution. Mm. So that means we have jurisdiction over Colorado Supreme Court justices, uh, members of the Colorado Court of Appeals, district court judges, and uh, county court judges. Uh, there are some exceptions to that uh, jurisdiction that uh, uh, relate more to the Denver County Court, for instance, is a kind of conglomeration of both state laws and they enforce municipal ordinances. The Denver County uh, Court judges are appointed by the mayor of Denver rather than the governor of Colorado. And uh, because of that, they have their own separate judicial uh, disciplinary commission. To, to, to respond to your specific question, you know, is this uniformly applied? Yes, all the state court judges in Colorado subject to the jurisdiction of the commission would be held to the same standard, whether they're the uh, Supreme Court uh, justice or uh, a county court judge in, in Baca County or, or, or uh, one of the more rural parts of Colorado. Uh, everybody's held to the same standard. Even magistrates uh, that work uh, within the uh, judicial system, but who are regulated through uh, the Supreme Court's Office of Attorney Regulation because they're viewed as attorneys rather than judges, the code of judicial conduct is applied to them through that oversight process. Wow, interesting. Part of also what you do is accept complaints. So if a member of the public has a complaint regarding a judicial officer, how do they go about getting that investigated? So anyone uh, can request an evaluation of judicial conduct. It can be uh, submitted anonymously. Uh, however, if it is submitted anonymously, we don't have the opportunity to uh, explain to the person requesting that evaluation what the outcome was or if we received a response, that sort of thing. But we have a form for that that can be found on our website. Um, we also accept if uh, somebody submits a letter that uh, basically explains the, the substance of what their concern is. Why do you think all of this is important? I think it, it comes from the history behind it all. So here in Colorado, we developed, you know, essentially as a uh, as a boomtown or, a, you know, a frontier community before statehood, where many communities would, would kind of pop up overnight as they were created, new judges and uh, a new judicial system was uh, implemented. And so under that frontier system that we had, our judges used to be chosen through partisan elections. And it was a very decentralized system where there was the Colorado Supreme Court, a number of district court judges throughout the state, and an even greater number of justices of the peace. However, you know, because of that politicized and uh, kind of diffuse system, there were some real significant problems and a kind of a prevalence of competence, corruption, and bias within the judiciary. 
And it was out of that that in 1962, the Colorado legislature proposed a structural reform that was referred to voters through a constitutional amendment. It abolished the justices of the peace. It heightened the qualifications for uh, the judges that would serve under Article 6. And then it authorized the uh, Colorado Supreme Court to standardize rules for the lower courts. Well, with that initial reform, there was also a movement uh, that was started through the League of Women Voters with the support of the uh, Colorado Bar Association to initiate a constitutional amendment through the voters. And that amendment, Amendment 3, it became effective in 1967. But it was what was so critical here. It abolished partisan judicial elections in favor of the Missouri plan of uh, merit-based selection. And under that Missouri plan, we have how judges are now selected in the state of Colorado. Anyone that meets the basic qualifications can apply for that position. They then have their applications considered by nominating commissions. There's a nominating commission for each judicial district, plus a statewide nominating commission that nominates the Colorado Supreme Court justices and also members of the Colorado Court of Appeals. And once, you know, those nominating commissions have done their work, they send three nominees' uh, names to the governor who makes the ultimate choice as to who would be appointed to be a judge. Once that appointment happens through the governor's office, all judges serve a provisional two-year term, after which they're subject to a retention election. And that's kind of what we've seen, I think, most recently in uh, 2022, that uh, judges uh, were up uh, on the ballot with the question of whether they'd be retained or not. Once a, a judge is initially retained, then they are subject to future retention elections. It's a 10-year term for the Colorado Supreme Court. It's an eight-year term for the Colorado Court of Appeals. It's a six-year term for the district courts, and it's a four-year term for the county courts. One thing that's really notable in Colorado is that we have a mandatory age of 72 years old, which judges have to retire from active status. With respect to those retention elections, in 1988, the legislature created uh, judicial performance commissions to help educate and inform Colorado voters during those retention cycles. And the focus of performance is just uh, looking at a judge's general competence and uh, their overall performance. And it really is up to the voters if that judge remains in office or not through that election process. It's really important to note just the uh, chronology here. So the fact that Colorado had created a enforceable code of ethics before it was even you know, proposed nationally through the ABA, those changes to the uh, code of conduct didn't happen until 1972. It's really significant because I think uh, Colorado shows itself as a, uh, a model for the rest of the country and, and kind of, uh, you know, blaze the trail here. Wow. Learning a lot. Any final thoughts you'd like to add to this discussion? There's anything in all this is is the public should have confidence that our judicial system is is working. And by having these these ethical standards and, you know, having the uh, commission serve in its role, uh, of, of sort of monitoring and enforcing these things. That, that's what this is really all about. Very eye-opening. Christopher, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. I really enjoyed uh, speaking with you. Christopher Gregory is the executive director of the Colorado Commission on Judicial Discipline, sharing with us some insights into what his office does in terms of overseeing judicial conduct in the state and educating us a bit on how judges and justices are selected here in Colorado. Thanks for joining us today. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.